0: Good morning. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain before your idols, and I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste, and the high places ruined. So that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down and your works wiped out, and the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord, yet I will leave some of you alive, when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have broken, been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain That I would do this evil to them. This is the very word of God.
1: Who is God? What is He like? Could there be a more important question than these? Last week, I argued from chapters 4 through 7 that we should read, or 4 and 5, that we should read 4, 5, 6, and 7 as Ezekiel's initiation into the prophetic vocation that God called him to do. And in the two chapters before us this morning, there's a phrase that comes up over and over again. We saw it twice in these first 10 verses. The phrase is, and you shall know that I am the Lord. The first time that phrase occurs is actually in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 13. But Here's the thing. That phrase occurs over 70 times in the book of Ezekiel. And 10% of those are found in Ezekiel 6 and 7. So, This is the theme I want us to center on this morning. How can we know who this God is? Because apparently, if this is part of Ezekiel's initiation into the prophetic ministry, apparently, God knows that before Ezekiel can do his job as a prophet, before he can go and speak for God, before anybody could be a goer, and go and speak for God, we got to know who he is. We have to know that he is the Lord. Ezekiel had to know that. So do you, and so do I. Now, scholars call this phrase that occurs over 70 times the recognition formula. And its use throughout Ezekiel communicates that the way to know Who God truly is comes not by philosophy, but by history. We don't figure out who God is by sitting around and thinking about it. We come to know who God is by seeing how God has acted in history. The reason for this is because this recognition formula says, and then you shall know that I am the Lord Uh, The word Lord there, of course, you know this, I hope, but sometimes we forget that in our English Bibles, the tradition has been when you see Lord in all caps, that is the sacred name of God. We don't actually know how to pronounce it, but kind of the prevailing view today is that it's pronounced Yahweh. The name refers to God as he has been revealed to his covenant people. It's that God's covenant name with his people, with Israel. And so the reason we cannot know who God truly is unless we see him and his great acts in history is because the God revealed to us in the Bible is, has made himself known as the covenant-keeping God of Israel. If we want to know God, we must see how he has acted, In steadfast commitment to the covenant that he made with Israel. So you can't know him by philosophy. It's not gonna work if we just sit around and imagine, well, if there is a God, he must be like this or that. We've got to see him as he has acted in his covenant love with his people. And what can we learn about God through his covenant with Israel? And the answer is lots of things. (laughs) Lots of things. But from Ezekiel 6 and 7, let's ponder three this morning. First, his passion. Second, his brokenness. Third, his justice. The passionate God, the broken God, and the just God. The passion of God, the brokenness of God, the justice of God. First, the God of the Bible, the God that we are worshiping together this morning, is a passionate God. The first time that we see the recognition formula, again, is in Ezekiel 5, verse 13, and it goes like this. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. So who is this God? Who is the God of the Bible? What kind of being is he? What does he want us to know about him? And here we are told in Ezekiel 5.13 that we are to know him as a God who is jealous. Jealous. Now, that doesn't paint a very positive image in our mind, does it? You don't usually like people who are jealous, no wonder many modern versions opt for a different translation of this word, jealous. The NIV, the New American Standard, for instance, use the word zeal or zealous here. Still, in the context of this verse, Ezekiel 5.13, which speaks of God's anger and fury, of God seeking to satisfy himself, we are invited to ponder this particular aspect of God, Call it jealousy or zeal, whichever one you want. God obviously wants us to know that this is something true about himself. So the Hebrew word translated here, jealous, is found 43 times in the Old Testament. And surprise, Ezekiel uses it the most, more than 10 times. There's no doubt about it. This is the kind of word that's supposed to get your attention. Call it jealousy, call it zeal, Either way, this is an aspect of God that you can't ignore. He's going to get your attention. And that might be the point that we should start with. This is not a God that you can just leave off to the side. This is not a God that you can ignore. He doesn't sit quietly away somewhere far in heaven or anywhere else for that matter, untouched or unmoved by the events of earth. He isn't disconnected from human history or available to answer only if some person on earth decides that he just might want to see if there's someone out there. But can we be honest? This is what so many of us in the West have come to think as the default disposition of God. When it comes to our assumptions about God, we've probably been influenced more by the Enlightenment than we have by the Bible. The God of the Enlightenment, if such a being even exists, is so high above the world that he can hardly be touched by the events here below. Thus, to talk of God is to immediately enter into the realm of religion Enlightenment thinking would tell us. Some kind of private spirituality of faith that has very little to do with the public realities of science and history, of politics and mathematics. I appreciated Pastor Daryl's prayer a minute ago. Uh, The God who made this world makes a world where discs can fly through the sky, right? Like God made a world like that. We have yielded too much ground here Perhaps attracted by the way that this view of God, this enlightenment view of God, seems to actually uh, exalt him high above all created things. Such a view also fits well with the gods of ancient paganism, which, judging by this default position of God in our modern and postmodern world, only demonstrates that the old pagan gods are alive and well in the public imagination. Christians, we should know better. We have to know better. The God of the Bible is Yahweh. Quite simply, not the kind of being we would ever dream up or imagine that the God must be. This God is different than what any human being has ever dreamt of or thought up. And it's this aspect, his jealousy, that is a clear indication of this. So let's get back to that word for a moment. This translation, jealousy, I think, simply will not do when it's used in reference to God because in our common use of the word, it's entirely negative. Zeal or zealous, probably a little bit better. I would prefer that, but I think that still leaves much more to be said. In fact, I'm not sure there is an English word that will suffice for this Hebrew term. But there is an analogy. There is an analogy that works quite well. You see, throughout the Bible, this word, jealous, zealous, it finds its central meaning in the marriage relationship. It expresses the entirely appropriate response that is aroused when a legitimate and wholesome relationship is threatened by interference from a third party. Okay, we get that on a human level. Do you get that when it comes to God? The fact that God expresses this deep emotion and response does not tell us that God is capricious or reckless or out of control, it tells us amazingly what we would have never never otherwise known, that the God who made the world is deeply passionate, a God of passionate love. God has made a promise to his people, a covenantal promise of love that the marriage relationship is meant to signify. And God is the most faithful lover there has ever been. And as we read through chapter 6, we can see that this is the view of God that Ezekiel has to come face to face with. And so do you and I. If we're going to accurately represent God and speak for God to the world, then we need to know that God is passionate, a passionate lover. So when God acts against Israel in this chapter, Notice it in verse 3, his promise to destroy their high places. Verse 4, his promise to break down their altars. And yes, even this talk in verse 5 of God laying the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols and scattering their bones around their altars, this has to be seen as the entirely appropriate response of God's passionate love. I realize, of course, that no one could justify talk of killing an adulterous spouse as an entirely appropriate response to infidelity. But before we come to that, let's move to the second revelation of God that we find in our text. Take a look at verses 8 through 10. After promising to act against Israel... Out of his passionate love, out of his zealous covenant love for his own, God says this. Take note. Yet, I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. I have not said in vain that I would do This evil to them. Notice that God says right there in verse 9 that the time will come when those who have survived the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem and the exile will remember me, he says, among the nations where they are carried captive. They will remember, God says, how I have been broken over their whoring heart. And then The recognition formula follows in verse 10. So not only must we know that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the God of Israel, not only must we know that he is a a jealous, passionate lover, we must also know he has been broken. He has been broken. Now, the run-up to this statement in the previous verses, again, we read them this morning, has God promising to do to Israel's idols what Israel has done to him. Did you catch that? The run-up to verses 8 through 10 is God saying he's going to do to Israel's idols exactly what Israel has done to him. In verses 4 and 6, you'll find the same word, broken, as you find in verse 9. What has broken God is Israel's worship of idols. What are these idols? We can answer that question interestingly from the particular word that Ezekiel uses. You see there are there's several Hebrew words that in our English Bibles are translated idol. But Ezekiel uses a very specific word. Of its 48 occurrences in the Old Testament, 39 of them are found in Ezekiel. In his commentary on Ezekiel, Daniel Block, probably the most recognized scholar alive today on Ezekiel, says that this word that Ezekiel prefers for idol appears to reflect God's own attitude toward them. What is the word? Well, let me quote Block here. Modern sensitivities prevent translators from rendering this expression as Ezekiel intended it to be heard. (laughs) Time out. So, in other words, adults are going to have to pick this up. Because I'm not gonna use the word. So back to the quote. Had Ezekiel been preaching today, he would probably have identified these idols with a four-letter word for excrement. Yeah. The use of this explicit term for idols is meant to signify that they are, Bloch says, quote, powerless figments of the human imagination. End quote. In fact, you're going to see, well, we don't have time to see, but in chapter 7 an, an idol can become any anything can become an idol. Literally anything other than the one true God. The temple in Jerusalem can become an idol. The very place that God ordained and established to be his dwelling place can become an idol. An imaginative replacement. Powerless figment of salvation. We sang a song this morning. Oh Lord, we cast down our idols. People of God, people of God, you better be the first. We better be the first to recognize that our hearts quickly turn to powerless figments of the human imagination that deserve the most explicit terms in our in our English language. The very fact that God then proclaims utter destruction of them and of those who worship them testifies to the impotence of the idols to defend themselves or their devotees. We worship all kinds of things that have zero power to rescue and deliver you. You can imagine God however you want him to be. Or you can let him reveal himself as he actually is. Far from God simply being jealous of his chosen people who have opted to worship some other God, the God of the Bible is broken that they have done so. He is broken that they have turned after something which is dung, worthless, powerless. But it's not like these idols are just unable to do anything good. By worshiping them, Israel is becoming like them. And that means that these idols, powerless as they are, are not innocuous. They are destructive for God then to see his people worshiping idols and to do nothing about it would mean that God is apathetic about the role that his people are to have in his world. Did you hear that? For God to do nothing, to see his people worshiping these idols would mean that God is apathetic about the role of his people in his world. Many people think of God like that. Many Christians think of God like that. They think of God as sovereign, meaning nece- that God necessarily uh, is impassive or unfeeling since he is sovereign, and in the end, he's going to just work everything out anyway. So God's way up there. He sees all the terrible things, but it doesn't phase him. It doesn't, he is in control. Sometimes we Christians talk like that and we don't know what we're actually doing. In fact, there's a long standing doctrine of God's essential nature known as his impassibility. So there's your theological term of the day God is impassible. But few attributes of God have been more susceptible to confusion and misunderstanding than this one. I hope I can clear the air this morning. The doctrine of God's impassibility means only that no created beings can inflict pain, suffering, and distress on God at their own will. So, if in fact God suffers and feels pain from creaturely actions as we see here, clearly he does, and plenty of places elsewhere in the Bible, clearly he does, then, listen, it is by his own deliberate decision. If God suffers and feels pain from creaturely actions, as clearly Ezekiel is supposed to know he does, then it can only be by his own deliberate decision. And you say, what decision? What decision did God make that means that he feels pain from creaturely action? And that decision is the decision of God to enter into a covenant with his people for the sake of all creation. He didn't have to do it. There was nothing about God's nature that meant He was forced into this covenant relationship. He took the initiative. He made a covenant with his people for the sake of all creation. You've been to Perspectives, right? You know that. God made a covenant with Abraham, with his people, so that rescue would come to all of his created worlds. So... With this understanding of God in mind, I want you to take a look again at verses 8 through 10. When God goes to work against the idols that we worship, he does this because he knows, and you should know, that the idols we worship dehumanize us. And so God goes to work out of a heart of brokenness. This heart of brokenness betrays that God's heart is a heart of steadfast love. When you read about God's anger and God's wrath, you have to see that in context of God's covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love to his own. And that's why at the end, we see here the hope that remains God will leave a remnant, verse 8 who will remember God and how broken he has been over the dehumanizing idolatry of his people. And verse nine says, they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And then verse 10, here it is, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the covenant keeping God. So when God is done breaking the idols There will be left a remnant, he says, who will see that God has been broken too. This moment will be the moment of God's victory. It will be the moment when his people turn back to him in remembrance of God's steadfast covenant-keeping love. When this moment comes, it will not be the moment when all of a sudden people say, oh, the, I guess there's the, there's the God of the Old Testament and there must be a God of the New Testament. That's not what will happen. No. When this moment comes, his people will see this is who God has been all along, the covenant-keeping God. And that moment has already arrived. It's the moment when Israel's Messiah handed broken bread to his disciples and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we see Jesus, especially as we see him in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, we see who God is, a God of steadfast love who chose to be broken in order to break the idols that dehumanize us. Now, in chapter (laughs) 7, we find the recognition formula three more times, verses 4, 9, and 27. And it seems to me that the emphasis throughout chapter seven is on God's justice. When God exercises his justice, His uh, there's not a, another word for it, his, his terrible justice, this will be when it will be made plain that he is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. So here is where we need to remind ourselves again that God's great acts of judgment have to be understood in light of his covenant. If you are just thinking of God as the God of the enlightenment, he's just kind of up there, and eventually he just has had enough. He's just gonna doom the world. If that's how you view God, you don't understand the God of the Bible. You have to keep in mind, once again, that the God of the Bible is a God, shockingly, surprisingly, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have dreamt it, you couldn't have imagined it. It's a God who entered into a covenant. A relationship of love. He did it of his own free will. A covenant of love with his people. Unless you keep that in mind when you start reading about God's justice, you will simply not be able to stomach his justice. Until you see how broken God is by the infidelity of his people that he loves so much, we will not have the proper context for knowing God In his judgments, we will quite simply get the wrong impression when we read about God sending his anger upon Israel, like we do here in chapter 7, verse 3. We will be all out of sorts when we read God saying things like he does in verse 4 My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. A God who is angry and has no pity? Can you comprehend that? along with a God of deeply passionate love? It was deeply unsettling for the people who would hear Ezekiel's message. And make no mistake, it was deeply unsettling for Ezekiel. So, if it's unsettling for you, you're in good company. But have a look at verse 4. God says he will punish, Is- punish Israel for their ways while their abominations Are in their midst. (laughs) They will be caught in the act, as it were. I like that song we sang this morning where it says, He died for me while I was sinning. Hmm. And so God's punishments will be deemed just. They will know that I am Yahweh the covenant-keeping God. I'm being true to my promise, my promise of love to my own. In fact, the evidence will be overwhelming. And that's the guarantee that God gives. On the day when he executes his justice, even those who receive that justice will acknowledge that God's action is right, that God Is simply being true to his promise, that God is simply keeping his word, and it will all be known at the end. At the end. In verses five through nine, we see many of these same themes repeated. Again, for Israel, the message was that, as verse seven says, the time had come and the day was near. It was time for God to act. This ought to have been the kind of thing that would be good news to God's people. But instead, look what it says. It will be a day of tumult, not of joyful shouting on the mountain. God's actions would be in accordance with Israel's ways. As they have done, so they have received. What does that mean, though, for us? It would be easy, of course, to turn this into a doomsday sermon. Plenty with would do it that way. But I think that would be out of line with the meaning of the text. Except for this. Except for this. We just confessed a few minutes ago in the Apostles' Creed that we believe that the day will come when our Lord, when Jesus Christ, will return to judge the living and the dead. I think that means everybody. (laughs) And when he does... The Bible tells us, every knee will bow. Does that mean God will force them to their knees? Or does that mean that the day will come when every person will fall on their faces and say, this God is in the right. This God acts justly. When he strikes, as verse 9 says, it will be clear that he does so with complete justice. God's judgments, his strikes, will not be arbitrary or capricious. Again, as if he were some deist God far, far away, otherwise untouched by the affairs of God humanity. These will certainly not be undeserved. Verses 10 and 11 describe the coming doom for Israel as the time, look what it says, when the rod has blossomed and pride has budded and violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. God will take action, Ezekiel was promised, and so are you and I. God will take action against the dehumanizing crimes of human pride and violence. Do you think of those sins that way? Dehumanizing? We also sang a couple times, we said, make us humble. Make us humble. Do you see pride as the kind of vice that brings dehumanization to us? God will act, he will strike against the dehumanizing crimes of human pride and violence and the effects described in the rest of the chapter, which we don't have time to read, but as you read along, you'll see is the collapse of the entire social order. It's kind of doomsday. That's what verses 12 and 13 tell us, but we must not think of God's action against human sin as disconnected from that very sin. God's judgments are manifestations of his covenant faithfulness. They will know I am Yahweh. That is who God is. He's the God who made a promise to Israel, and he acts out of his steadfast, faithful love. God's judgments, then, are nothing other than manifestations of his covenant faithfulness. He made a world in which when we live in it rightly, according to his ways, according to his instructions, what buds, what emerges, is life. And when we live in his world wrongly, with pride and violence, what emerges is a rod of wickedness, and God must act. And if we think we know better than he, when human pride begins to bud, violence Is what comes. God is right then to serve as the facilitator of the disaster that we bring upon ourselves for our arrogant worship of idols. So, what if? What if the world as we know it were to be destroyed by a nuclear holocaust? What if, in fact, it is due to human misuse of our planet that a future ecological disaster comes to pass? Just what if? Would this not prove the justice of God who made a world that works when his people do what is good, performing justice, loving kindness, And walking humbly with their God. You see, perhaps it will only be at the end that we will all finally come to know that the one true God, the one who made all things, is in fact Yahweh, the covenant keeping God of Israel. But the good news today is that for those who trust in Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, 10 verse 11, The end of the ages has already come. (laughs) You already are at the end. So let anyone who thinks he stands, Paul says in verse 12, take heed lest he fall. There is now a way of escape from every temptation, a way to flee from the dehumanizing idolatry of our evil hearts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So let us come this morning to Jesus, who Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 is the one who delivers us, indeed already has, from the wrath to come. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, it seems clear to me that it is the pride of our hearts, imagining a God in our own image, acting in ways that we think is right, that is the source of all wickedness. So we who believe in Jesus should be the first to confess. We should be the first to acknowledge that we deserve your wrath. We have brought all kinds of dehumanizing evils into our world, into this world that you made. In fact, we even experience some of its pain. We've been caught in the very act by a God of justice. But the good news is we only know that you are just because we know of your covenant. We know of your promise. And we see in your great acts in history, you have only been faithful every single time to your great promise. And so, there is a way of escape. There is a rescue from the wrath to come. And it is the one who is broken for us. The one who asks us, by the sacraments of of the Lord's Supper and baptism, to remember. To remember the one who is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. So, may we come to you again this morning. The one who possesses salvation, rescue, deliverance, even from death itself. The promise of Easter Sunday is the promise that the end has come and a new life, a new creation has begun. And if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. So we come to you, O oh God, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.